Welcome to Sunday School. Good to see you here from California. We've come to a climactic moment in our study, climactic moment in history. It was really the what could be called the worst and best day in history. The worst day because it was on this day that the Creator Himself would be killed by His creation. But it was the best day because in this horrific death, God was providing salvation for sinners. We're talking today about Jesus' crucifixion. There's so much tied up in this event, we really must pay close attention to it. My hope is from the lesson today that you will, as we look more closely at the crucifixion, understand the dreadful price of your sin, understand the staggering love and humility of your God, and be moved to walk more worthy as you consider the gospel. In today's lesson, we're going to be using John's account of the crucifixion in John 19, but if you haven't already, I encourage you to read the parallel accounts in the other Gospels. We will make reference to some of the things in those other Gospels, but you will be edified if you take a look at those accounts yourselves. Let's pray before we continue. Our God, my God, what we're studying is too horrible, but also too wonderful for us to have ever come, to ever have thought of, and it's, it's even now hard to comprehend such a terrible and wonderful reality. God, I pray that the people would appreciate it today, that they would understand it, that you'd give me the ability to, to explain it, and that we would fall even more in love with you because of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're going to pick up the account in verses 17 to 42. Recall what Jesus has endured up to this point, the moment of his crucifixion. He's first betrayed by one of his closest disciples, Judas Iscariot, handed over to a mob. The rest of the disciples abandon him. One disciple, perhaps multiple, one disciple denies him outright three times. Jesus endures three Jewish trials all mockeries of justice. He endures three Gentile trials, and though he's pronounced innocent each time, he's nonetheless handed over to be flogged and crucified. Jesus has been taunted and ridiculed. He's been spit upon. He's been slapped in the face. He's been given a purple robe and a crown of thorns. He's been beaten on the head with a reed, and he's been presented with mocking worship. But now, the greatest horror, he's been handed over for crucifixion. And this is where we pick up the narrative in verse 17. John 19, verses 17, and we'll read down to 42. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is, in called, in, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There... They crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, 
but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. And now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, said the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass, to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again another scripture says, They shall look on him whom they pierced. Okay, we're going to walk through our method of observation, interpretation, application, but before we even do that, we need to know some things about crucifixion itself. What is crucifixion? What exactly does it consist of? First of all, we should know that crucifixion was not a Roman invention. Actually, it's first attested historically from the Persians. They may have been inspired by the Assyrians, who liked to impale people, but the Persians first practiced crucifixion, and then when any other, whenever another nation would learn about crucifixion or see crucifixion, they basically said, what a great idea. This will strike fear into people's hearts. And they adopted the practice for their own. The Greeks practiced uh, crucifixion. The enemy of Rome, Carthage, practiced crucifixion. And eventually Rome also adopted the practice. Now, what did crucifixion entail? Well, Crucifixion originally took place on a pole or a stake, but by Roman times, it was taking place on a, on a cross. And the cross could have been shaped like a capital T or a lowercase t. You had one vertical beam of wood and you had one horizontal beam of wood, and they would be laid on top of each other. The crucifixion victim was usually flogged beforehand and then made to carry the crossbar, so the horizontal, piece of wood through the local city 
on himself to the place of his crucifixion. He also carried on him a placard around his neck with his crime written for all to see. Once the victim of crucifixion arrived at the crucifixion site, his feet were bent and pierced through with a single nail. His wrists then were nailed, or actually this would happen beforehand, but his wrists were also nailed to the horizontal crossbar. And notice it's not the palms that receive the nails, it's actually the wrists. Apparently hands, the middle of the hands, cannot support the weight of the body on nails. So to keep this person attached to the cross, the nails were driven in between the arm bones near the wrist. So the man would actually hang, or the victim would hang by his wrist. Now the wrist was considered part of the hand in ancient cultures. So that's why the Bible says that Jesus' hands were pierced. Once placed upon the cross, the victim hung there naked and elevated for all to see. Now, this is something we should note. In our pictures of crucifixion, of Jesus' crucifixion, there's usually some sort of covering on Jesus. This is likely not the case of what actually happened. No one tried to preserve the dignity of a crucified man. Those who were crucified were totally exposed. So the man is put on the cross, and also posted on the cross is the man's crime. Anybody who passed by would know exactly why that person was suffering crucifixion. This was meant as a deterrent to others. Are you considering doing this man's same crime? Then you're going to end up the same way. Now, crucifixion was not so much about death as it was about painful, humiliating, prolonged death. It was quite common for crucifixion to last several days. The man would just continue to hang there. Now, how does someone actually die who is crucified? There are two main ways. Do you know? All right, suffocation. We'll talk about that in just a second. And the other is, and we don't hear about this too, too much, it was less common, but she died from shock. The person who is, some, sometimes the person who is crucified, either due to the flogging or due to just the ordeal itself, would lose a lot of blood. And if you lose a lot of blood quickly, your body goes into shock and your organs often will shut down and you will die. So sometimes the victim of crucifixion might die from shock. And that would kind of come a little bit earlier. But more commonly, the person who was crucified died from suffocation. Now, perhaps you're already familiar with this, but just in case, you see that when you're hanging this way on the cross by your wrists, it's actually very hard to breathe. Your, your chest is dropped in such a way that you can't breathe unless you pull yourself up. But as the person who is hanging on, the, or as, as a person hangs on the cross longer and longer and becomes more and more nutrient deprived and has to keep pushing him up, himself up like this, he becomes exhausted. I mean, after all, he can't even sleep. And he's not eating, he's not drinking. So as day turns into day, turns into day, the man eventually becomes so weak that he's not able to push himself up anymore. And so he just slumps down and dies from lack of air, basically dying without a sound, totally defeated. Now, the prolonged hanging was intensely torturous. 
One Bible dictionary describes the experience in this way. Thirst was intense, and the weight of the body produced inexorable pain. That is pain that cannot be gotten rid of. Victims were tormented by high fever and convulsions, which racked their entire body. Occasionally, the executioners prompted death by, break, by breaking the victim's bones. Why would breaking the bones bring death swiftly? Exactly. If you have to push yourself up to breathe, you won't be able to do that if your bones are broken. And so death will come quickly. You will asphyxiate. So to sum up, in crucifixion, you are impaled on three nails hammered into your feet and wrists. You are weakened and wounded from your previous flogging. You are naked and exposed. You can only breathe with difficult effort. You are hungry and thirsty. You are exhausted, but you cannot sleep. Your head is pounding. Your body is convulsing. You have people staring at you, laughing at you, shuddering at you. And this was all to go on for days. Crucifixion was considered so horrible and so humiliating that Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified if they committed a crime. There were a few exceptions. If you committed treason, you might still be crucified as a Roman citizen. But otherwise, this was not something that the Romans would allow themselves, even their criminals, to be subjected to. Crucifixion was usually reserved for the heinous crimes of slaves and foreigners. And yet, or no, I'll say this. In other words, crucifixion was the worst possible death that men could devise up until the Roman era. And this is what the Son of God, Creator, Messiah, King, subjected himself to. This is what he experienced. Many of the details of crucifixion that I've just described we see specifically in the text. Let's now consider observations. Notice the timing of Jesus' crucifixion. What day is it? The text mentions it's the day of preparation before the Sabbath. So it must be Friday, which is why we say Good Friday, right? We celebrate Good Friday. It's Friday of the week. The, uh, the sixth day. It's also the day of preparation before Passover. If you just look back up to verse 14, same chapter, it says, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. Remember, there is, when we talk about the timing of Jesus's crucifixion, there's that, you have these two calendars at work among the Jews. Some celebrated Passover Thursday evening, and others would be celebrating it Friday evening. So Friday during the day was considered the day before Passover. And Passover would have then coincided with the Sabbath on Saturday, starting at sundown, starting in the evening on Friday. Now, why is it significant that Jesus was dying, or that Jesus would be crucified and die in the hours before Passover would begin, at least for many of the Jews? Because what would happen in the hours before the evening of Passover began? 
Many Jews were preparing for the Passover, which included the preparation of what? The Passover lamb. And the hours before the beginning of Passover, the Passover lamb would be slaughtered. And that's not a random detail. John is helping us to see that Jesus' death takes place the same day and the same time as the killing of the Passover lambs, for many of the Jews anyways. So it's Friday, the day before Passover for many of the Jews. What time is it? Well, Mark says in his gospel that Jesus was crucified the third hour of the day, and that would be 9 a.m. But if you just look again at verse 14, and here in our account, John says that it was about the sixth hour when Jesus is handed over for crucifixion. So that would be 12 noon, if we're using the same time system. This, this is an inconsistency. One says 9, one says 12. What's going on? Well, this is not a contradiction. These are different perspectives. There are different ways that people try to explain this. I think the simplest answer is that what Mark is describing is when the process of crucifixion began, when Jesus' trials began. Remember, it took some time. Jesus was tried three times, Pilate, Herod, back to Pilate. He needed some time to go back and forth. I believe that process began at 9 o'clock. Mark considers that the beginning of Jesus' crucifixion. But the crucifixion proper, when Jesus was actually put on the cross, began at the sixth hour, or 12 noon. And Jesus would remain on the cross for three hours. Now, there is an important detail that's mentioned in the, the other Gospels outside of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all note that something strange happened the sixth hour of the day. What happened? Darkness came over the entire land. And it lasted for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And some people say, oh, maybe it was an eclipse. Well, that's not normal for an eclipse. Eclipses don't last that long. But darkness came over the entire land for three hours. And those were the same hours that Jesus was on the cross. Notice verse 17 in our account in John. It says that Jesus bore his own cross to the place of crucifixion. That was normal for a crucified person to do. Though, Matthew notes in another one of the Gospels that Jesus actually needed help to get the cross to where it was going. The soldiers impressed or pressed a passerby named Simon of Cyrene. They made him carry the cross at least part of the way. This means that Jesus was apparently too physically weakened to carry the cross the whole distance by himself. Moreover, when Jesus arrives to the crucifixion site, not recorded here in John, but it says that someone presented him with wine and gall to drink. Now, gall is a very bitter substance, but it had a sort of anesthetic capability. It would deaden pain and cloud the mind. But Jesus refuses the wine and gall. Now, notice the place that Jesus is crucified. Golgotha, it's called. This name is Hebrew, and... John points out, it translates to the place of a skull. Kind of a grotesque name, right? This apparently was a hill not far from Jerusalem. The name may have something to do with the appearance or the shape of the hill. It is Golgotha, from which we get the name Calvary. Calvary is the Latin translation of the word skull, Calvaria. So 
whenever you hear, maybe in a hymn, it talks about the hill of Calvary. It's actually talking about Golgotha, skull, the place of a skull. This is where Jesus is crucified. Notice that Jesus is crucified between two others, one on his right, one on his left. Crucifixions for criminals, that means Jesus has been crucified between two criminals. Matthew tells us that they were not just any criminals, but they were robbers. Notice the inscription that Pilate puts on the cross in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. If you ever see a painting or um, some other visual depiction of, of Jesus on the cross, sometimes you might see four letters put on a sign on the cross, I-N-R-I. That's just shorthand for what this charge would have been in Latin. I-N-R-I would be how you would write out Jesus Nazarenus, Rex Judaeorum, or Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So this inscription appears on the cross, and notice the chief priests object to this inscription. They suggest a change, but Pilate refuses. Notice also what happens to Jesus' clothing. It says that his outer garments are divided four ways, one part to each soldier. But they cast lots for the inner garment, the tunic. And this is significant. As John points out, it fulfills prophecy. And notice especially John's use of the word therefore in verse 25. He mentions the, ver the fulfilled prophecy, then he says therefore. John is explaining something. Why did the soldiers do what they did? What was the reason? Yes, God ordained it. It was because it was prophesied. Now, note the difference. It's not really that they happened to fulfill prophecy. John is going so far as to say they did it because it was prophesied. Therefore, they did these things. There was something written that was prophecy. Therefore, they did these things. It was ordained of God, and God brought it to pass. Notice who Jesus sees from the cross. He sees a group of women, including his mother and his aunt. And he also sees a disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, we're familiar with that phrase by now. Who's that disciple? That's John the Apostle. And what does Jesus direct John to do? When he says, behold your mother, what essentially is he charging John to do? That's right, to take care of his mother, to take care of Mary, which is why the text says from that hour onward, this disciple took Jesus' mother into his own home. Jesus, as Mary's son, as the firstborn, he would have had an obligation to take care of her, but he passed on that obligation to John. Notice what Jesus says when, it, when he knew that all had already been accomplished. Jesus says, I thirst. And notice why it says he did this. What's the reason? To fulfill the scriptures. And at this statement, the people give him a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch. And once he drinks, he says one other thing in our account. It is finished. It's just one word in Greek. You perhaps have heard it before. 
to telestai. It has the idea, it is finished. This same word, interestingly, appeared on ancient bills during that day with the meaning paid in full. Notice how Jesus' death is described. It says, he gave up his spirit. This is a striking description. What does it imply? It doesn't say his spirit was taken from him or his spirit left him. It says he gave up his spirit. What's the difference? Indeed, it does imply control. It implies agency. Jesus chooses to give up his spirit. That's authority. That's not normal for a person. And yet, this should remind the reader of John of something Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of John. Consider John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18. You can turn back there if you wish. I'll just read it to you. John 10, verses 17 to 18. Jesus says to his disciples, For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it up again, or so that I may take it again. For no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. We see the same the sentiment echoed in the description. He gave up his spirit. Notice what else is surprising about Jesus dying. He died at the ninth hour. Why would that be surprising? Say that again. It was quick. That's really early for someone to die in crucifixion. That's not normal. In fact, Mark tells us that when Joseph of Arimathea goes to ask for Jesus' body, it says that Pilate wondered that he was already dead, and he sent his centurion to double-check, or he verified it with a centurion. That's really early for someone to die who's crucified. That's surprising. But then there's a third surprising aspect of Jesus' death. It's not mentioned here specifically, but it is implied in the translator's use of an exclamation point in, it is finished. What else is surprising about Jesus' moment of death? It's normal for those who are crucified, if they're going to die, to die silently, die with a whimper. But how does Jesus die? He dies in strength. Notice the descriptions of, of Jesus' last moment in the other Gospels. Like I said, there's an implication here in John, but it's not stated specifically. Matthew 27:50 says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Or Mark 15, 37 says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And Luke 23, 46 says, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathes his last. Why would this be so surprising? It's as we've said, those who die by crucifixion are totally weakened, totally spent. 
They don't have an ability to cry out. They just slump down and run out of air. But that's not Jesus. He dies in strength. He dies with a shout. And the people were frightened by this. This is not normal. And the centurion even confesses, not mentioned here in our gospel, but he confesses in light of the way that Jesus died. Truly, this was the Son of God. Very, very surprising. Very poignant way that Jesus dies. Now notice, the Jews request that the Romans break the legs of those who were being crucified. They don't want the men to be hanging on the Sabbath. Now, why would this be a concern to them? Why does it matter if somebody's hanging on hanging by crucifixion on the Sabbath? Ah, that's very true. Yes, it does have something to do with defiling the lamb according to the law of Moses. If we go back to Deuteronomy 21, 22, we hear this from God. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance. So it would have been wrong for the man to even remain overnight. But how much more on a Sabbath day and how much more on Passover itself? So they asked these men's legs to be broken. Two of the men's legs are broken and they quickly die. But Jesus's legs were not broken. And why is that? The text says the soldiers noticed that Jesus was already dead. And we also see the reason is it was to fulfill prophecy. But notice, one soldier still pierces Jesus' side with a spear, and it says that blood and water come out. Now, what's this all about? What's this about blood and water? I read different medical explanations as to what's going on here. From my research, it seems the best way to describe, well, no, let me say this. This is what I've gathered. The heart and lungs are surrounded by a watery fluid. So if somebody is stabbed and blood and water come out, this person who, who was stabbed, he could have been alive or he could have been dead. But for blood and water to come out, he had to be stabbed in a particular place. He had to be stabbed in the lungs and into the heart. That's where we have this watery fluid in our bodies, along with blood. So if Jesus is stabbed in this way, or so for this description to be true, it would seem to indicate that Jesus was stabbed in a particular way, into the lungs and heart. If Jesus were still alive before this stabbing, would he have survived afterwards? Clearly not. We cannot exist when our hearts are when our hearts have been breached in this way, not to mention our lungs. This, if Jesus were not already dead, he certainly would have been dead after this piercing. Now notice there, notice then that this is where John comes into the text with explicit affirmations that what he saw is true. He says, I saw it, 
We know that my testimony is true. And notice he says, this is recorded so that you might believe. This is written so that you might believe. And then notice the word for in verse 36. Another reason so the person might believe. Not just John's eyewitness testimony, but because of the fulfilled prophecies. Right, we've made our observations. Let's now go to the second step, interpretation. Talk about what's not directly affirmed in the text, not directly stated. What was the purpose of Pilate's inscription on the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's not a random sign. What's it there for? That's, yeah, Steve. Hmm. Right. Right, right. So this is Jesus's crime, quote unquote, and it's listed on the cross for all to see. Here's what happens to those who rebel against Rome, as you were explaining, Steve. This is this is the seditious one. This is the king of the Jews. This is Jesus. Now, the uh, of course, there's a, there's some irony in that, that Pilate actually pronounced him innocent, even though he claimed himself to be the king of the Jews. But when Jesus had to be crucified, he decided this is this is the charge. Now, notice the chief priests objected to this inscription. And they asked him to change it, but Pilate wouldn't. Why wouldn't Pilate change the inscription? The text doesn't say, but it's not hard to figure out why. Pilate was basically browbeat into killing Jesus. He didn't want to. So it's not like he has any, any favor towards this, these chief priests. If they're annoyed about this inscription, so what? They're annoying to Pilate. He's not going to change the inscription. In fact, as some people have pointed out, he perhaps enjoyed the, the way that this, this made the Jews look. They, the, the Jewish people were an annoyance to him. This is what happens to your king. It kind of like was a... Not an insult exactly, but it was a way to make the, the Jews contemptible. Here's your king, Jews. He's being crucified. And so he says, what I've written, I have written. I'm not going to change it. But there's one other significant aspect to that. Pilate was actually correct in his inscription. This is the king of the Jews and not just the king of the Jews. He's king of creation and he's the future king of all the earth. And yet he was crucified. Now, why did the world go dark? while Jesus was on the cross. That, of course, was not random. What was this darkness demonstrating? Certainly, there may be multiple things connected with this darkness, but certainly it was, it came upon the earth to signify the monumental nature of what was being accomplished, of what exactly was happening. Because as many of you know, the cross was not merely the painful death of an innocent man. The cross and Jesus on the cross 
was really the pouring out of the full fury of God against sin. It was the pouring out of God's fury against sin. Without Christ, each person who has ever lived must have the wrath of God poured out upon him because he is a great sinner and his sin is so offensive to God. God, in our lives, he holds back this wrath, but once we die, that wrath is pulled, poured on full force in hell. This is God's righteous anger, his boiling anger against sin because he is so good and so just. His anger is so great. He must eternally torment stubborn and perverse rebels, which is what we all are. All of us deserve hell. And without Christ, all of us will experience hell. The unleashed wrath of God. And there are many billions of souls, even right now, that currently are experiencing the wrath of God in hell. But at the cross, Jesus was standing in the place of sinners. He was standing in the place of all who would believe in him. And he was suffering what they were supposed to suffer. In these hours, with Jesus on the cross, their sins were being ascribed to Jesus' account. And Jesus' perfect life and righteousness were being credited to each one of them. Jesus was becoming their sin substitute. He was acting as their sin substitute. But for him to do this, Jesus had to experience hell. He had to drink to the dregs the cup of the infinite wrath of God. He had to absorb in himself the full blast of God's unending indignation against sin. But who could possibly pay off a crime with an infinite punishment? Hell is eternal. How could Jesus pay an eternal penalty once and for all. Well, because Jesus is God. Only a being who is himself infinite can absorb infinite pain, can finish infinite suffering, which is the price of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Apostle Paul writing, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This was the true source of agony for Jesus on the cross. And it's why the world went dark. It's not the nails. The agony was not the nails, nor the thirst, nor the exhaustion, nor the hanging there. It was the wrath of the Father against the sin-bearing Son. This is why Jesus exclaims what he does according to Matthew's gospel, not recorded here, but Matthew 27, 46 it says, Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, so that's right near the end of his crucifixion, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, something happened that has never occurred in eternal history and never will again the supremely intimate and pleasurable love relationship of father and son was interrupted. The father turned his face of love away from the son and instead rained down the fiercest judgment that he could. 
This had never happened. This is the worst thing that could happen. There was no greater agony that the son could endure than to have the father turn his face away. So why did he do it? Why did Jesus endure that agony? <clears throat> Excuse me. Why did he endure that agony? I ask you, why did he do it? It was his love, right? Not just his love for us, but his love for the Father. He loves the Father so much, he wanted to please the Father. And this is what the Father ordained. He prayed in the garden. Excuse me, just one second. He prayed in the garden, Father, if, there, if there's another way, if you can remove this cup from me, then do so. But otherwise, your will be done. He wanted to please his Father. His whole life was about pleasing the Father. This is the love relationship of the Trinity. And this is what the Father ordained. This was going to be the way he would save sinners. So Jesus gladly submitted to it. And for the Father's sake, he loved us. He loved us greatly and deeply. So of course he would do this for us. He would go to this length. This is the great love of Jesus Christ. It's exactly what Jesus himself explained to his disciples when talking about himself and talking about love. He tells his disciples in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's why Jesus did it. It was for his friends. And he counts friends, his disciples, those who have believed in him. This is a precious reality. It's a sobering reality, but it is a precious reality. But there's more to it. It's my next question. What is the it? And it is finished. What did Jesus finish? He finished the work of redemption. He finished all that the Father tasked him to do. Jesus paid the full price required, and he fulfilled all prophecies relating to his death. There was nothing left to do. All that was necessary was accomplished. Now, this is a very significant fact for those that believe in Christ. What is the implication for them in Jesus' statement? It is finished. If Jesus pronounced it is finished, how much more of our salvation needs to be accomplished? No more. Nothing. It's all accomplished. The price of our sin is fully paid and salvation is fully accomplished for us. This is why adding works to faith in Jesus is such a great and evil error. Some say you must believe and then you must do such and such in order to be saved. 
you have to add works to faith. Or they say you will be saved by believing in Jesus, but you might have to suffer a couple, uh, suffer a couple of eons in purgatory first before you're allowed to go to heaven. That is in total contradiction to what Jesus says on the cross. No, whatever was required for our salvation was finished by Jesus on the cross. He did it all and he pronounced it done. If you need something more than what Christ provided at the cross, then Christ is a liar. It is not finished. But Christ cannot lie. He is the truth. He is God. So if Jesus pronounces something finished, it must be finished. Now, can you fathom that? Your infinite sin debt. I mean, think on your sins. Think on the different sins in your life. Every gripe, every lie, every careless word, every snide comment, every lustful thought, every act of violence, every sigh of discontent, every flash of anger, every shred of resentment and bitterness, all of it was paid for once and for all by Jesus at the cross. You believe in him. That is true. The Apostle Paul gives some explanation to this reality in his book, Romans, his letter to the Romans. Listen to what Romans 5, verses 6 to 11 says. Sorry, my nose keeps running. Romans 5, 6 to 11. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps... For the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Truly, it is finished for those who believe in Christ. Their sins have been paid for once and for all. They are reconciled to God. They are saved. And they will have eternal life with the Lord. But for those who do not trust Christ, it is not finished. In fact, it has hardly even begun. Truly, it will never be finished. The crime is too great. That is why hell is eternal. That is why Isaiah writes, in the last verse of his great book of prophecy, Isaiah 66, 24, part B, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. What a difference. One more interpretation question for us to consider. Why does the soldier pierce Jesus' side? Now, I've always thought it was to verify that Jesus was already dead. 
But that's not what the text tells us. The text says the soldiers saw that he was already dead. Moreover, stabbing Jesus in this way would have killed him. Whatever reason, for whatever reason, the, the soldiers decided, the, the soldier, not the soldiers, just one soldier decided to, to do this, perhaps to make doubly sure that Jesus had really died. And as we noted, to be stabbed in this way would have been fatal. This is a seemingly random choice from the soldier, but it wasn't actually random. Why is this so significant? Well, obviously in the text, it fulfills prophecy, and that's significant. But there's something else. Why is it significant for Jesus to be pierced in this way and for blood and water to come out? What does it prove about Jesus' death? It proves that he really did die. Jesus really did die. And this is significant, right? Because many, since Jesus' death, since Jesus' resurrection, have tried to explain it all away. They say, oh, Jesus didn't die. This was all a clever scheme. He just swooned on the cross, and then he was laid in the tomb and revived, snuck out, and was never heard from, or he, he reappeared, but everybody thought he was raised, but he didn't really raised because he never died. In fact, there were some even in John's day, even when he writes this gospel, who denied Jesus was human. They felt it was inappropriate for God to take on human form since matter was inferior and evil. And so if he wasn't human, then what he experienced on the cross was just the appearance of death. He didn't actually die because he wasn't actually human. But, pa, but the apostle John explicitly contradicts these ideas with his eyewitness testimony. He says, I was there. I saw the blood and the water. I know no one could have survived that. Jesus died. That is an inescapable fact. And he died in accordance with the scriptures. That's why his resurrection and his reappearing is so amazing. He rose from the dead. He died in accordance with the scriptures, but then rose again. He really did die. Now let's consider again the fulfilled prophecies. I kind of moved past them quickly in the text, but at the cross, we need to realize there's so many prophecies that Jesus was fulfilling. It's like uh, there was an explosion of prophetic fulfillment at the cross. We don't have time to look at all the different passages, but some of the most significant ones I've listed for you on this slide. Psalm 22 has a lot to say about Jesus' crucifixion, and Jesus fulfilled its words. Consider verse 1 of Psalm 22, which actually begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Jesus said this, or he said the first part of this at the cross. Or verses 6 to 8 in Psalm 22. Verses 6 to 8 say, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. It's not recorded in John's gospel, but people said those exact things to Jesus and about Jesus while he was on the cross. 
Jesus was fulfilling that prophecy. Or verse 16 in Psalm 22, it says, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Just exactly what happened to Jesus. Or verse 18 in the same Psalm, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 has much to say. There's also Psalm 69, verse 21. Psalm 69, 21 says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's just like what they gave him when Jesus first arrived at Golgotha. At Golgotha. Or Zechariah 12, 10. Zechariah 12, 10 is an eschatological passage. God talking about how Israel will one day repent. And this is what God says. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So part of that prophecy has been fulfilled. Jesus has been pierced. But there's coming a day when Israel will realize that they have pierced they have pierced their Messiah. They have pierced their God. And they will weep. And then there's all of Isaiah 53. We could just read the whole passage again. I mean, there's so much there that's fulfilled. But we've already looked at that in a previous Sunday school. I'll just remind you of a few verses from Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Verses 10 to 12 continue in Isaiah 53. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. That's a reference there to his resurrection. As a result of the anguish of his soul, verse 11 continues, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. These prophecies were written hundreds of years before Jesus came. The Psalms, nearly a thousand years before Jesus went to the cross. And yet Jesus perfectly fulfilled what they wrote. What does this testify about Jesus? What do these fulfilled prophecies indicate about Jesus? That he is the Messiah. He is the King of the Jews. He is the Son of God. He is the salvation that God sent into the world. That those who believe in him will be saved and never die. And that's the point of John's gospel, isn't it? The cross was no accident. It was the culmination of a plan that God first began to reveal. Back in Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, when the Lord curses the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Our rescuer that was promised from ancient days, he finally came and he accomplished the rescue on the cross. So behold then, my brothers and sisters at Calvary, the great 
irony, paradox, whatever you want to call it, of the gospel. A humiliating and agonizing death under the wrath of God has become the greatest victory for all God's people. Jesus has secured once and for all, for all his followers, salvation from sin, salvation from Satan, and deliverance from death. And Jesus didn't just die, he rose again, demonstrating his full victory and power. But we'll talk about that next time. Is this not good news? Isn't this wonderful news? Does anything else in life compare to this reality? Does anything else even matter? Who could have dreamed that God would do this? But he did. Jesus was glad to do this. He did it for the joy set before him. He did it to bring us to God. He did it so that we might behold the glory of the Son forever. So how should this affect us? What's the application? Well, there are multiple ways, my brothers and sisters. First of all, we should believe. We should believe this good news. We should believe in the Son of God. We should love God. We should love him for what he's done. We should imitate Christ. If he laid down his life for us, we will gladly lay down our lives for him. He's done so much more than we could ever do. And we will lay our lives down for others. Jesus showed us the way. And we should, we should tell others about this good news. Tell others what Jesus has done. Tell them how he's fulfilled the prophecies. Tell, us how he's, tell others how he's accomplished God's redemption plan. Perhaps one other thing we should note. Jesus said it is, it, it, it is finished. How are efforts of legalistic self-righteousness a great offense to him? They suggest that Jesus wasn't telling the truth. That Jesus' work on the cross was not enough. Let us never do that. Let us dare not try to add to Jesus' work. So what about you this morning? Have you trusted in Christ? Do you believe the gospel? Have you seen God's authority over you as creator? Have you seen your own deep sinfulness and inability to meet God's standard? Have you seen Jesus' perfect life and sacrifice? Have you seen your own need for repentance and turning away from your previous flawed way of thinking to embrace what God says? And does this result in following after Jesus in your life? I pray that it does. Only the Lord knows where you are today. Don't trust your upbringing, your attendance at church, your various ministries you're a part of. God knows your heart. If you have trusted in Christ this morning, then rejoice. Share this good news. Don't keep it to yourself. Give thanks to God. Any final questions before we close today? This is such such great news, but it gets better. Next week, we talk about the resurrection, but that's it for this week. Let's pray as we close. Our Lord God, what can we say? Lord, how can we respond in light of such, 
such a beautiful happening for us. Lord, this was the worst. This was the worst man could devise. It was the full wrath of God against you, the son. But it was also the best because we've never seen such love as this. Oh, Jesus, you were so glad to please the Father. So glad to save us. Each one of us, you knew each one of us. You thought of each one of us. Your love is not merely a blanket over a group of people, but it goes individually to each one of us, to me, to the people in this congregation. Thank you for such love. Oh God, help us to walk worthy of your gospel and tell others about it. It's too good for us to just keep to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.